0: Ray Brown's Talking Birds.
1: Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Route 6A, Orleans, Cape Cod. On the web at Um, birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By the Boston Harbor Island Alliance. Minutes away, worlds apart. Go to bostonharborislands.org for more information.
2: Everyone's
3: Talking Birds, I love that show!
2: Good morning. Welcome to our show number 542. The sound of whooping cranes there. To remind us to remind you of a special Talking Birds live broadcast on Sunday, October 4th at the Patuxent National Wildlife Research Refuge in Laurel, Maryland. If you're anywhere near Washington D.C. or Baltimore, Maryland, that general area, hop on your bike and ride to the refuge, or use other forms of transportation. If you prefer, we'll be broadcasting a talking bird show live from Patuxent. That's Sunday, October fourth, nine thirty to ten a.m. Eastern. If you're in the area, please join us if you can. And that is the sound of a male greater sage grouse, that iconic and now threatened denizen of western sagebrush country. Have you seen the PBS Nature Series documentary about the bird produced by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology? It has aired on TV on PBS at least a couple of times, and you can now watch the entire thing online. Just do a search for sagebrush C or look for it at PBS. Most definitely worth watching in the opinion of your humble friends here at Talkin' Birds. You know, we love and appreciate receiving emails from Talkin' Birds listeners, but getting a postcard? Well, that's extra special. I mean, that kind of thing uh, just doesn't happen much anymore. But Ed from Saugus, Massachusetts, sent us a card saying he's happy to have received the Droll Yankees feeder that he won on a recent mystery bird Contest. Glad you and the birds are enjoying the feeder, Ed, and thank you for the card. Meanwhile, from far to the northwest of Saugus, Mass., our Charlotte Wusselick is ready to regale us with stories about the Big Sit and how kids can visit national parks for free in our Charlotte's weblog. Alberta, Canada, it's Charlotte Wasilek and the latest installment of Charlotte's Weblog. Good morning, Charlotte.
3: Good morning, Ray. This week on my blog, I have a post about my recent camping trip to the Northwest Territories. If you're interested in seeing photos of grey jays, the northern lights, and beautiful waterfalls, please visit my blog at its new web address, prairiebirder.com. The U.S. National Park Service will be turning 100 years old next year and is celebrating by launching the initiative Every Kidna in Park. As part of Every Kidna Park, all fourth graders in the United States, including homeschoolers and their families, qualify for a free annual pass to all federally managed national parks, forests, and wildlife refuges. This initiative hopes to inspire the beauty of the natural world in the next generation. And what a great opportunity to get outdoors and learn more about the birds, trees, wildflowers, rocks and animals that surround us. Visit park.gov for all the information you need to print your park pass. This year's Big Sit is Saturday, October 10th to Sunday the 11th. The Big Sit is like a big day or a bird-a-thon with the object to tally as many bird species as can be seen or heard from a single location within as much of the 24 hours as you can. And the hours don't have to be consecutive, so you can take breaks. This birding event is hosted by the Birdwatchers Digest and founded by the New Haven Bird Club. For more information, visit the Birdwatchers Digest website and search for The Big Sit. That's all for this week, Ray. I'll talk to you soon.
2: Thank you, Charlotte. We'd like to recommend to all a visit to Charlotte's blog and just check out those gray Jays and the northern lights and magnificent waterfalls at her new address. That's prairiebirder.com, prairiebirder.com. Yeah, big things happening with the national parks. In case you hadn't heard, next year is the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. And in addition to that uh, every kid in the park thing, we're going to be doing a lot with that celebration. So we'll have some big announcements to make about that uh, very soon. We always say uh, our phone lines are open here this morning, but we're a little backed up this morning. Mary Ellen from Marshfield, thank you so much for calling. We hope you'll get back to us very soon with the question you have there. Our conservation salute of the week goes to the people and leaders of the Rocky Mountain City of Aspen, Colorado, which has just become the third city in the United States to run on 100% renewable resources. Aspen will now get all of its energy from a combination of wind, hydroelectric and solar power, plus geothermal heat. The serious issue of the danger to birds caused by wind turbines notwithstanding... This is still a marvelous effort, so Aspen, Colorado. Please accept this talking birds conservation salute. Still to come on our show today: Hawks and eagles aloft. We'll learn a little something about the amazing spectacle of raptor migration this morning when we talk with the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary's own Laurie Goodrich there in eastern Pennsylvania. Also this morning from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, our man Mike O'Connor will shed some light on birds laying multiple clutches of eggs in warmer climates when he answers a California listener's question about that. And just ahead next, we'll get up close and personal with the meatloaf on a stick. It's today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. Hey, hey, wait a minute, you guys. There he is. Hey, meatloaf
4: on
3: a stick. <laughs> yeah, hey, no neck. Hey, let's hear that silly call of yours. Yeah, beep, beep. Sounds like a toy model of an old Volkswagen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our featured feathered friend, the American Woodcock, does sound kind of like a toy model of an old Volkswagen. And it does look like a meatloaf on a stick, as author Pete Dunn described it. But it's a pretty interesting bird, all right, a shorebird that lives in the forest, superbly camouflaged and hard to find as it probes the ground with a flexible-tipped bill that's specialized for catching earthworms, which it probably feels as it pokes its bill into the earth, often rocking its body back and forth as it walks slowly around and steps heavily with its front foot. It's believed it does that to make worms move around in the soil so they'll be easier to find. The male American Woodcock is famous for his elaborate display to attract females. In the early spring, he makes his toy model car painting sound on the ground, then flies upward in a wide spiral. As he gets higher, his wings start to twitter. After reaching a height of about 200 to 300 feet, he starts chirping as he comes back down in a zigzagging dive, then lands silently near a female if he can, and then he starts that painting again like this. The female, by the way, looks like a slightly larger version of the male, a brown, buff, and gray meatloaf on a stick with short legs and a long bill. The American Woodcock, our featured feathered friend, here on Talking Birds. Thanks for being with us here, our show number 542. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Talkin' Birds. Dr. Lori Goodrich is the Director of Long Term Monitoring at the legendary Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, located along the Appalachian Flyway or Appalachian in eastern Pennsylvania. And she is with us on the phone right now. Good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning.
2: Great to have you with us. I wonder if we'd start off by uh, Lori telling us what uh, Director of Long-Term Monitoring does. <laughs>
4: well, uh, it's a big job, but um, basically I'm in charge of uh, maintaining our annual hawk migration counts in the fall and the spring, mm-hmm. and uh, making sure the data is collected in a standardized way, and then getting the data analyzed along with other sites' data to give us some picture of the hawk migration, of the hawk trends, Mm -hmm.
2: populations. And of course you have lots of hawks and other raptors and other birds flying over Hawk Mountain, Um, and it's got quite a history, I mean, an amazing transition. It reminds me of the Christmas Bird Count in a way where uh, Hawk Mountain went from being a place where people shot hawks to a place where people watch them and conserve them and learn about them. Give us a little quick thumbnail, Lori, if you could, about the history of Hawk Mountain.
4: Yeah, it has a great uh, history and an interesting history. We've been around for 81 years now, hmm. uh, but in the 1920s, the ridges of the Appalachians, particularly in this area of Pennsylvania, were popular among um, local people for shooting the hawks that were coming down the ridge by the hundreds, and people would gather on, on good days, and um, hundreds of birds would be shot. So in the early 1930s, uh, a woman from New York City, Rosalie Edge, who was in, uh, involved in conservation movement at that time, found out about this and uh, looked into, was trying to get some um, groups such as the Audubon Society involved in trying to stop it. But when um, they weren't moving fast enough for her, for her, uh, she went ahead and raised the money to buy the property that's known as Hawk Mountain, which is was a very popular shooting spot, and by so doing, established the first uh, sanctuary in the world for birds of prey. We don't, uh,
2: we don't, uh, I haven't read much about, you know, the reaction when she did this, but that must have been a pretty tough undertaking for her with all those uh, folks who wanted to shoot the birds.
4: Yes, and uh, she very smartly uh, hired a young man, Maurice Brune, who was our first curator. She hired him to come out to the site in the very first fall in 1934 to be the first curator and, Caretaker of the sanctuary, and to uh, confront the hunters um, or the shooters, I should say, and tell them that you know things had changed, and uh, we were going to be watching the birds instead of shooting them. Mm-hmm. So um, he had a tough job, that, but he was uh, he had the personality to to make it work. And um, so Hawk Mountain' first couple decades were really focused on getting legal protection for birds of prey. Uh, and so that they no longer could be shot anywhere in the, in the country, mm-hmm. so that finally happened in the late '60s and early '70s.
2: Laurie, talk about the mechanics a little bit, of, if you would, about how mountains assist in raptor migration. What, what, how, how does that, uh, how does the, how does that work in terms of the birds getting up there and those thermals and so on?
4: Yes. Um, well, there's two kinds of wind currents that are created along mountain slopes. One of them would be um, the thermals that you mentioned, which are uh, basically hot rising air currents that are created wherever you have Earth heating at different at different rates. So on a south sloping mountain, the, uh, the air heats faster than its adjacent north-facing slope. So we get these uh, lines of thermals along the south slope of a mountain that the Hawks can use to gain lift. They rise up in the air current and then just sail off to the next one so they, mm-hmm. they can save energy that way on their way south. The other air current that birds use um, and that we particularly like here at Hawk Mountain is, is when you get a wind, a northerly wind or a northwesterly wind um, for us, and it could be different for different areas, but mm-hmm. wherever the, the wind strikes the slope at a perpendicular angle, it gets deflected upward, and that creates mm-hmm. a wave of air just like an ocean wave at the shore that the birds mm-hmm. can kind of ride just like a person would ride a, a, a board coming in on an ocean
2: wave. So the wind and the thermals can kind of act in tandem, I assume, at some point, at some times.
4: Yes, sometimes, particularly if you have a light wind, and but you're also getting strong thermals, the birds can take advantage of that. And uh, for hawks in particular, that's being somewhat large birds, these air currents are very important for them, saving energy on their way south.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, here we are in September 20th. Laurie, where are we sort of in the scope of migration season and which species are tending to travel now rather than... Uh, later in the fall, I think late season migrants, if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, are ones that generally don't travel as far. Do we have that right?
4: That is that is correct. Um, we are at the height of the early season period uh, right now. Broadwing hawks and osprey and are uh, mm-hmm. primary migrants that are coming through, and that some of them are going on to South America, so that they need to get moving, and they're moving out of the northeastern states into Texas and. And onward, mm-hmm. um, but we are right now at the cusp of the middle season migrants, the Sharpshin Hawks and the Falcons. Who some of them may go into the um, Central America, some of them, a lot of them, in the East to stay with, uh, go as far as Florida. So uh, this is a really busy time to be at the at the lookouts and a good time to visit uh, any hawk watch wherever people are.
2: Mm-hmm. People often ask about fall being the big season for watching raptor migration and not as much in the spring. Of course, there are more birds now that have just uh, hatched this year. How to describe, though, the difference, Laurie, between the two seasons, spring and fall, for raptor migration?
4: Yes. the the uh, Of course, the breeding season just ended for our, all our birds, mm-hmm. uh, most of our birds, and uh, so you, you pretty much have double the number of hawks right now than you will perhaps in the spring because um, there is mortality that occurs during migration and over the winter so uh, there basically are more birds flying in the fall than in the spring but the other big difference is that in the spring the birds are are more pushed to get back to their territories but if they want to reclaim it and not have somebody move in on them (laughs) so they may not take advantage of these uh, air currents and things as much as they do in the fall, so mm-hmm. um, their, their flight tends to be more direct, or at least that's the theory. Uh, we're learning a lot about this, this uh, migration dynamics um, in the last 10 years because of telemetry, but, mm-hmm. but um, basically those are the main differences.
2: How about some reports currently there? Can you regale us with some, uh, some big numbers, Lori?
4: <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, our, we had a big day on Friday, um, this past Friday, with uh, over 1,500 broadwing hawks who mm-hmm. flew by Hawk Mountain. But um, right now, all throughout the Northeast, um, we are seeing big flocks of broadwing hawks at some of the sites. Um, western Pennsylvania, or central Pennsylvania yesterday, there were two sites that had over 1,000 birds, mm-hmm. and uh, some in southern New York as well, a couple thousand birds here and there. And then Texas is just starting to see uh, their 10,000 bird days starting with the broadwings just. Hitting hmm. Texas now, the early wave of broadwings are hitting Texas. Mm-hmm. So, and also uh, Hawk Ridge in Minnesota had over seventeen hundred birds yesterday. So, so this is uh, things are happening.
2: <laughs> well, one thing, Lori, to wrap up, uh, it might be of comfort to some birders is that watching hawks migrate doesn't always require getting up early. Correct?
4: That's true. <laughs> yes, uh, hawks uh, often wait until the sun heats up the earth a little bit so they can get get those hot rising air currents. So. Sometimes we don't have any birds before 9 o'clock. So, yeah, you can get up there by 8 or 9 o'clock and still see lots of birds.
2: All right. Dr. Lori Goodrich is the director of long-term monitoring at the legendary Hawk Mountain Sanctuary there in eastern Pennsylvania. Lori, keep up the great work, and thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Here on Talking Birds on our show number 542. By the way, here in Massachusetts, some big numbers of birds. Speaking of broad-winged hawks... That's the sound of the broad-winged hawk there. They've reported at Wachusett Mountain so far this season. Are you ready? 9,630 broad-winged hawks flying over Wachusett Mountain. Up next here, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute.
1: Here's an idea for the next time you're shopping for wild bird food. Look for the Audubon Park brand, a top choice among bird lovers for more than 40 years. That's because Audubon Park wild bird seed is the finest kind, with more than a dozen selections to choose from, including the popular fruit and nut, songbird and cardinal, and no-waste patio blends. Human development and climate change are having increasing impacts on wild birds. Feeding the hummers, chickadees, goldfinches, cardinals, and all the beautiful and fascinating birds in your backyard really helps them survive. Survive and thrive. All of Audubon Park's products meet the highest quality standards in the industry and have earned early compliance with the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act. And Audubon Park products are easy to find at your supermarket, lawn and garden store, farm and feed market, and online retailers. For more information, visit AudubonPark.com. That's AudubonPark.com. Audubon Park wild bird food is made right here in the USA. Get some for your backyard birds today. Audubon Park Wild Bird Food.
2: Talking Birds is made possible in part by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, a world leader in the study, appreciation, and conservation of birds. Please check them out at birds.cornell.edu. You're eligible on the Mystery Bird Contest if you haven't been a winner here on Talking Birds in the past six months. And by the way... Our show is uh, live today on the 20th of September. If you're not hearing our show live, you can do so online no matter where you are. Just go to TalkingBirds.com and see how to do it. It's very easy. We urge you to call early in the process if you can on our mystery bird contest so that we don't run out of time uh, for your chance to win this beautiful Droll Yankees new generation peanut feeder. Birds can cling to the wire mesh food cage while feeding, so you get a really good look at them. And it also has a lifetime warranty against squirrel damage. Kind of important. Here's the number to call, 781-837-4900, 781-837-4900. Here's the sound of our mystery bird. Not a sound you'd uh, get to hear really very much, but uh, kind of interesting to listen to. Our mystery bird is a small water bird, about a foot long, with a small head, a thin short bill, and a moderately long neck. For summer breeding, mostly in northern Canada and Alaska, it has a reddish neck, black cheek, a yellow tuft behind its red eye. In winter, found on all three U.S. coasts, the colors fade into black and light gray, with a very large white cheek patch our mystery bird feeds by diving for fish and crustaceans and gleaning insects from the water surface that's our mystery bird what do you think it is if you know why by all means tell us and if you don't know we'll take a guess at it because no correct answer means a drawing will determine our winner so give us a call here and let us know what you think tell us what it is 781-837-4900-781 Eight three seven four nine hundred. Meanwhile, what about when the weather is warmer, the climate's warmer? Do birds lay more eggs, more clutches of eggs? We'll get an answer from our man, Mike O'Connor. It's Let's Ask Mike in just one minute. Right in Boston's backyard lies a magnificent resource where you can walk a Civil War-era fort, explore tide pools, and camp under the stars. Once known as the city's hidden gem, the Boston Harbor Island's National Park Area has become the go-to urban escape for tourists and residents alike. It's a marvelous destination for birders, offering a huge variety of migrating and nesting species that can be viewed independently or during free ranger-guided bird walks on Saturday mornings. The islands are home to other wildlife, too, including deer, fox, coyote, rabbits, raccoons, muskrats, squirrels, and harbor seals. There are countless activities for non-birders as well, like hiking on miles of trails, sunny beaches, ocean fishing, concerts, beer tastings, and programs for the whole family. 34 islands, 3,000 acres, endless fun and exploration. All minutes from Boston. Find out more at bostonharborislands.org. Well, ladies and gentlemen, a man who answers questions in his store, in his newspaper columns, in his best-selling books, and even when he feels like stooping really, really low on this radio program. It's the Bird <laughs> General Store's phone, Mike O'Connor. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Ray. I feel like stooping really low on so let's do something. Here's a question. He says, hi, Ray. I love your show and listen regularly. In fact, I save my favorite podcasts for extra listening. I have a question for Mike. I live in California, and I'm wondering if birds in mild winter climates have multiple nesting seasons. Do more birds have multiple clutches in mild winter climates? Doo-dum, oh, how about doo-dum. that? That sounds it should be set to music, that question. <laughs> uh. Anyway, that's from Absolutely, I- Doug. California. Uh, Yvonne Birch Hartley, somewhere in California. Yeah, that's California. Nice. What do you think? Boy
0: poor vine. Somebody send her a bottle of water, will you? Things are tough out there. I've been talking to customers in California. Mm-hmm. kind of yeah. The birds will nest if they can get enough water. That's what's mm-hmm. going on there now. I guess it's coming this winter, so uh, just hang on a little bit longer.
2: People are doing a good job out there cutting down on their water usage, though. I've been reading about that.
0: Is it really? Oh, good. Uh, yeah. oh, oh, good for them. Thumbs up. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, they're absolutely right. Uh, well, you're absolutely right. They do. Birds do will have uh, more broods, depending on the climate. I know up here in the north, some of my customers will get uh, a couple of broods of bluebirds, two, two batches of bluebirds, but down south, like Georgia, they, they'll have three and even four broods of, of bluebirds because the, the season is just longer. They can get started mm-hmm. earlier, and then they can, they can continue a little, little bit later into the season. Same thing in the um, California where they have a little bit better weather. I was just reading, reading a piece on um, purple finches which typically have one brood, because they're a northern bird. Mm-hmm. But, again, California, the, the purple finches will even have a second brood. I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, especially in California, like altitude. You know, the lower level birds, where the weather's a little bit nicer, mm-hmm. they'll have one brood, but one, I mean, two broods, but further up in the mountains, they got to kind of cut it short. So, yes, absolutely. Climate and uh, nesting season, if it's expanded, the birds will actually have... Uh, more brood, which is which
2: is kind of cool. All right. Well, there you go. And Yvonne, thank you for the question, and I uh, hope you'll come out here to Massachusetts, and uh, I'm sure she'll visit the Watchers general store. You better, Yvonne. I'm waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Okay, Ray. We'll, we'll talk again next week. Send your question to Mike. Pretty easy to do. Just email it to Ray at com. There ain't no G in talking. You can do it on Facebook or Twitter if you like, at talkingbirds. We will say thank you by sending you a copy of Mike's uh, newest book, Why Do Bluebirds Hate Me? And uh, then Mike will answer your question. So send that question in. Meanwhile, we're back here at the Mystery Bird Contest. Can we identify this bird? A small water bird about a foot long with a small head, a thin, short bill, and a moderately long neck. For summer breeding, mostly in northern Canada and Alaska, it has a reddish neck black cheek and a yellow tuft behind its red eye. In winter, where it's found on all three U.S. coasts, the colors fade into black and light gray with a very large white cheek patch. Our mystery bird dives by, or feeds by diving for fish and crustaceans and gleaning insects from the water's surface. What is our mystery bird? The Droll Yankees' new generation peanut feeder is the prize. Seven eight one eight three seven. 4900 is the number to call joanne is in borndale massachusetts kind of really close to the cape cod canal there good morning joanne
4: oh good morning
2: good morning you so, you sound surprised that you're you're on here
4: yeah i didn't know i would be on <laughs> and that's i just made a wild guess all right I know
2: cormorants have some interesting markings ah uh, so cormorants would be your guess yes yes well they do have interesting markings have you ever seen a cormorant really up close? No. You may, maybe a, you wouldn't want to. <laughs> I happened to do that one time just because it was one. There was one sitting on a on a breakwater. He let me get very close, and I was amazed at how beautiful the feathering is on a cormorant. We don't think of them as beautiful right. necessarily, no, but they yeah. kind of are. They are not, however, uh, uh, one it's of mystery. our mystery birds today.
4: Uh, our oh, mystery well.
2: bird. Yeah. But anyway, try us again, Joanne.
4: I will i love your show you. listen to it driving to work
2: thank you so much thanks Bye-bye. joanne okay with the guests of a cormorant we have a couple around here the great crested cormorant or the sorry the double crested cormorant and the great cormorant which is around here in winter the latter there meredith uh, uh, meredith is in rockland uh, massachusetts uh, here in the south shore of the bay state good morning meredith
3: good morning how are
2: you today i'm well thanks how are you
4: Oh, great. Thank you.
2: Oh, good to hear. What do you think our mystery bird is, Meredith? Is
4: it
2: a great egret? A great egret. No, it isn't. Not a great egret. Okay, Lots of those around you. here these days. Thank you, Meredith. Try us again. 781-837-4900. Let's go to uh, Chuck out there in Galesburg, Illinois. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Ray. How are you? I'm well. Great to hear from you, Chuck. Uh, our folks here in Massachusetts uh, can't seem to get it done on the mystery bird contest this morning. Can can you help? Well, let's
0: give it uh, a try. All right. Horned grebe.
2: Hey, that is a heck of a try. By that applause, I would indicate uh, you are correct. Uh, horned grebe. grebe. Nice work. You probably have some horned grebes in the ponds around there, do you? We have had them out here at the lake, yes. And I forget now where Galesburg is exactly.
0: Galesburg is in the northwest corner of Illinois.
2: south of the Quad Cities. All right. Well, Chuck, congratulations. Stay on the line. We'll get your address and send you that feeder. Thank you. All right. We're almost out of time. Just a quick reminder. Have you heard about electric eggs? Well, you will if you join us. And special guest Dr. Eric Strauss from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles on next week's show. And on October 4th, we'll be broadcasting live from the Patuxent National Wildlife Research Refuge in Laurel, Maryland. Join us there in person if you can or... Uh, be sure to tune in, and that does wrap up our show for today. The executive producer of Talking Birds is Mark Duffield. Our associate producer is Debbie Bleacher. Our engineer is Ryan Stanton. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week.
0: Ray Brown's Talking Birds,
1: made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Route 6A, Orleans, Cape Cod. On the web at birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. Um, yeah. By the Boston Harbor Island Alliance. Minutes away, worlds apart. Go to bostonharborislands.org for more information. I'm
3: talking birds. I love that show.